Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, we're back again, California. We've had some amazing interviews here. This is our last one, but I suspect this one again is going to be something really awesome. Such a great time here in California. Saving the best for last. I think so. Right? That's that's the goal. And that hurts to say a little bit because we are in the presence of Firefighterville. I'm in a fire department in L.A., Diamond Bar to be exact. You can get over it, man. Hey, Come on. You retired. I, love I, I, I was envious of the mustache when we came in. The dude that, that I think Mike. Mike. Yeah, you know, Mike had a, a rocking mustache there. So, yeah. Well, the native in you, you can't even grow can't, that. So. No, it looks, yeah. we won't even talk about what that actually looks like. It looks offensive. It's pretty offensive. My daughter says that firemen get issued mustaches when they get hired. <laughs> it's a great that look. Is, yes, it is. Maverick Especially the ones that, that uh, you twirl and get a little twist at the end. Yeah, those, those dudes are rocking. Well, today uh, we have on our podcast Captain Ed Monroe with Los Angeles County Fire Department. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, man. We're so glad to have you. And uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, tell us a little bit about your career before we get started into your uh, pretty incredible story. Sure, I've been with LA County Fire Department for 15 years. Uh, I've probably been a captain for about the last four or so. Um, it's a great job. I'm here on a fire engine in Diamond Bar. Um, but prior to that, I've worked in our uh, camp section as a crew foreman. Went out the fire line with inmates that was a great job uh, i've been a fireman up in the desert i've worked down here in the basin it's super interesting get to see a lot of cool stuff do a lot of cool things that's awesome 22 years F- 15 years total yeah yeah because you're and you're commuting from idaho right right so you're an idaho native los angeles county fire department that is true so i live in idaho and uh i'll i just think that's intriguing it's it's kind of cool i get to uh you know i live up there and i string together you know five or six days i work down here and i'll go back home for five or six days and and uh it works out good you know i have good quality time at home and um i'm here i'm focused and get my job done it's good sure absolutely so is that like a a disconnection piece like you can really disconnect from from the job. Oh, one hundred percent. I get to disconnect when I go home from work. I don't see LA County stations. Yeah. I don't see. I mean, I love the guys I work with, but except for the other guys that live up there, because there are a few. I mean, it's not like I'm bumping into into guys I work yeah. with all the time up there that's either. A, that's nice. a smart. Is that recent, or have you always done that? I've done okay. that for about three years. And you love it. Oh yeah. Are you California native? Mm-hmm. Okay. We did the same thing. I left I left California about 10 years ago. Yeah, it's great. Come on, man. He looks California. He has California written all over him. No. No, oh, you, yeah. you obviously don't know what California <laughs> looks like. Then it, it, you got California written all over him. Well, we have Vicky Speed here. She looks Vicky. She looks California. She's, she's got, got a little ca- California. Ca- <laughs> yeah, yeah. She does. <laughs> Vicky Speed, Blue Cancer Connect, is joining us. She's not on the podcast, but thanks for being here, Vic. She was nodding. She wasn't shaking her head, so I think she agrees. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, love the California. I've been spending some time out here. I love it. Oh, that's good. Good country. Absolutely. You can't beat the beaches out here and the weather's amazing. So let's dive into a little bit about uh, the Edmund Rowe uh, story. Well, it's not, it's your version of a really actually a heart wrenching story. And I don't want to spend any more time really uh, holding the listeners back from hearing this incredible story. So with that, I'm just going to give you the mic and, uh, not interrupt you unless we see a rabbit that we might want to chase. So tell us a little bit about uh, why we're here, Ed. So 
I don't really want to say that it's my story. I'm just a guy that was kind of swept up into it. Um, this is how I experienced the uh, Sierra incident, which was an incident we had with my department on June 1st of 2021 uh, up in the Santa Clarita area at F uh, Fire Station 81. Uh, we had a um, an off-duty, one of our members went into a fire station where he shot and killed uh, one of his opposite co-workers and then shot the on-duty captain um, who did not die. Um, and then he went home and ended up taking his life. Um, for me, how that shook out was is all three of those involved uh, people, they were all people I was close to. And uh, that day I was working at the next neighboring fire station. I received a phone call from the on-duty paramedic from that station. And, uh, you know, the phone rang and I picked it up. And, you know, fire station 132, Captain Monroe. And on the other end, uh, the fireman was like, hey, Monroe, it's Sparky. And, uh, excuse me, but this is the, the what he said. He goes, he goes, I'm not fucking around. Two-Tone just came in here, shot and killed Tori, shot Arnie, and I need help. So that's how it all started for me. And, uh, you know, in like that amount of time, I learned a friend of mine had died. Another friend of mine is one who did it. And another friend of mine was hanging on. So we, uh, it's all right. Uh, help's on its way, man. So, you know, I was getting on the phone to dispatch. I got my crew together. Um, told them what happened. Uh, we ended up uh, getting out to the fire engine. Uh, we put on our body armor because we didn't know where he was going at the time. And uh, we, uh, you know, decided, hey, we're not going to wait around here at the fire station because we didn't know if uh, the shooter was going to come to our fire station or not. You know, we, stranger things have happened in the world, right? So we got in the rig, got out. Um, dispatch hit me up. Hey, we need a fire engine to go up to 81s. It's all right. So, yeah, we'll go. They asked me if I wanted to go, which is kind of strange. But, um, yeah, we'll go. And uh, flipped around. We told them, hey, we're going up there. And we headed up there. And, uh, you know, we, uh, the conversations on the way there were hard. Uh, I texted my wife said, hey, you're going to hear some stuff on the news today. I'm okay. I'll talk about it later. I texted another fireman on the way, told him what happened. He was uh, a guy who works up there at 81s. Um, he was the only other engineer up there that was left, you know, one from that after that day. And uh, that's how he found out. It's kind of a crappy way to find out that one of your coworkers killed one of your coworkers. But, shoot, I was kind of struggling. I didn't know what to do. But we got there, and... Uh, we saw you know, the we had one of our helicopters had already set down. Uh, they were already running in the air when the salt went out, so they were able to get there pretty fast. And I saw him taking the captain away, and the copter lifted off. And uh, I told my engineer that day, well, hey, just pull up uh, when the copter lifts off, which it did. I told my guys, hey, get our gear. Uh, I want you to go make sure there's nobody else, no other victims, there's no other patients we have. Make sure nobody needs help. Uh, so we did that. They went to work and said, I'm going to go tie in with the other captain that's there because there was another engine from the other side 
of their district. Uh, they were already there. So I went and tied in. I'm like, hey, Jeff, how you doing, man? And he was pacing. He's like, I'm all right. And I'm like, all right, what do you need? Because I think we're good. And uh, I'm like, you're sure? He's like, yeah. It's all right. Jeff, where's Tori? And uh, he just kind of points towards the apparatus bay where uh, engine 81 was. And uh, I uh, looked over there, and I could see him in there, and I kind of walked over there, and Jeff walked with me, and I had a blanket on him. And, yeah, there was this massive feeling just being deflated, you know. And uh, we stood there for a little bit, and, uh, you know, not knowing what to do. I look at Jeff. I'm like, no, I need to get a flag. And he's like, oh, good idea. So we went looking for one and finally decided to take the one off the fire station. I'm like, well, this will be the last flag to fly over Station 81 today. So I went and I ran out there and I took that down, brought it, brought it back over to where Tori was, and I put it on him. And I mean, Tori's a guy I've known for 15, or by that point, it's about 13 years at that point. Um, I know him since I got hired. And, uh, you know, he was my friend. I'm like, I'm just going to put the flag on him. I'm not going to leave him. So I posted up after I put the flag on him with him. And I remember standing there, and I can remember the shell casings down there by him. I can tell you how they were situated. And I can remember how his, like, his body fluids were. And, you know, I remember kind of seeing out of the corner of my eye, like, other firemen breaking down and, and just crying. And I remember I was doing this whole stoic you know, like I'm going to be the, the, the solid, resolute guard or something with him, right? And I stood there, and I'm listening to radio traffic on my radio because I've got that on. I still got my bulletproof vest on. And uh, I just did that. I don't remember how long I was there. Um, but I heard the fire, this, this structure fire response go out up the road. And I remember thinking... Like, I didn't recognize the address or anything, but I knew that was going to be John's house. I'm like, he's going to burn his house and kill himself. And uh, it was kind of weird because, like, in that moment I knew, well, I got a, the, the second guy that was my friend. And, then, and John and I had been coworkers about six years prior. Um, we worked the same fire station together. And, you know, I had him over at my in-law's house and everything because, you know, they were motorheads. Him and my father-in-law, they talked car stuff and you know, I'd spent a lot of time with him, and so I knew he died. I just felt it. And, uh, you know, the fire engines are going there, and dispatch tells them, don't approach the house. Can't wait for the deputies to clear it. So this house is burning, and firemen can't approach it, and that's really hard for a bunch of firemen. I remember hearing that on the radio, and that was hard for me to listen to. I ended up turning my radio off. And then I was just, now it's just quiet. And I see the deputies putting up crime scene tape. And I see guys from my department milling around, doing everything. Um, you know, one of my guys came by and checked on me at one point. Hey, everybody's good. I'm like, sure. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm going to stay here with Tori. And they're like, all right, no problem. And then uh, I can't, I'm not sure how long I stood there. I mean, this call came in a little after 10. And then at some point, I, wanted, I probably stood there with Tori for over an hour. And eventually this deputy walks up to me. He's huge. And he's like, hey, I need you to come out. And uh, I'm like, no, man, I'm good. He goes, no, you need to come out of there. And he's saying this not like, hey, you're in the way of us doing our job. He's saying this like, you don't look so good. You need to come out of there. 
and I looked at him. I'm like, I'm not leaving my friend. And uh, he like he points behind me. He's like, hey, we got it. And he points behind me, and there's this other deputy. She's posted up the way I was. And I look back at him. I took a step, and he catches me. Like, I just started sobbing. And uh, he probably held on to me for about five or ten minutes, however long it took me to stop, which was a little, a little bit longer than I probably care to admit. But I get done, and then I'm kind of wandering around the whole scene. Um, I'm walking through the crime scene tape. I'm in it. I'm out of it. I'm in the building. I'm out of the building. Like everything you're not supposed to do when you watch TV cop shows, right? Um, end up sitting on this rock, and my chief was walking by because, you know, they had taken over running the incident when they got there. I'm like, Chief, I need to go. He's like, yeah, we're working on it. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I need out of here, like, right now. And by this point, it's 1 o'clock. We've been there a long time. And uh, he looks at me, and, like, he knew what I was telling him because I was feeling claustrophobic. I didn't want to be there. I needed to get away. And uh, he said, no, all right, we, we got you. And we were gone in the five or ten minutes we left. And, uh, you know, we went down the hill. We had a stress debrief we were going to go do, um, which we definitely needed to do. Um, dropped by the fire station real quick, dropped off some some stuff that we had, and uh, we go to the stress debrief. And um, we got there at about 2 o'clock. And then the stress debrief became this, it kind of took on like this life of its own. Our peer support, we do a pretty good job of running stress debriefs for um, all kinds of crazy calls that our department goes on. I mean, you can just imagine we go on their shootings and things with kids and then things that are just overly gory and things. I mean, you name it, right? We're a major metropolitan fire department. We see a lot. Our members see everything. Our peer support does a great job of helping out in that regard. But this is brand new, right? This is a fireman that shot another fire, or two other firemen. One of them's been killed, and the guy took his own life. And so now we're at this thing, and we're in this room, and an hour goes by, and another hour goes by. And now we've got, you know, 80 people in the room. Another hour goes by. It's been three hours. We've got over 100 people in the room. Like, what are we waiting for? Or oh, we're waiting for the fire chief. Why are we waiting for the fire chief? He never comes to stress debriefs. Well, he wants to talk to everybody. and I mean, I, I understand if chief wants to talk, but that's not what we needed at that time, right? But it took on its life of its own, and this wasn't really anybody's fault. This was just what happened. And uh, by the time he got there, this thing started at about 5.30. So I was there, got there at 2. All I wanted to do was leave. I didn't want to listen to him. I didn't want to listen to the other chief's talk. I was in a room surrounded by people. I felt like I couldn't breathe. It was claustrophobic. Again, all I wanted to do was leave, right? And, uh, but that, you know, wasn't going to happen then. But he gets there and he talks. He says, you know, what he felt was important. You know, the other chiefs are talking. They're saying what they want to report. At the very end, they're like, they're like, all right, anybody on the call want to talk? Like, well, now it's like, we're in this room, we're surrounded by people. 99% of them weren't even involved. I don't want to talk to them. You know, and the other the other captains, you know, he had, he was like, uh, he was ups, ups, upset, as upset as I was. He said, well, why, 
why should he goes this thing is a, a joke right now he goes what do you want me to tell you i don't want me to tell you it was going to crash a rig into him if we saw him i'm sitting there thinking well, i'm glad he just said that because that was our plan if we saw him you know it's not a, yeah that's not a great plan but that's where your head goes when you're in a fire engine going to something like this and uh I mean, obviously, neither one of us saw him because that's not how that, that that part of the story ended. But that's what we were thinking. You know, they get to me and they're like, "Hey, Captain Moreau, you got anything?" And I'm like, "You know what? I uh, I don't want to tell you guys. I'm all two months ago. I'm talking with John, asking him why he just can't be professional. Why does he have to let this be like this? And all he tells me is, this is nothing a bullet wouldn't fix.'" And I blew it off the same way I've blown off every time I've heard another fireman say some other knuckleheaded thing about a coworker that's completely out of line. Because I've been listening to that my entire career. Now what am I supposed to do with that? Like, I'm living with that now. And that's hard. I don't know what to do with it. And, uh, you know, nobody in the room had an answer for that. I still don't have an answer for that. Um, I've come to learn that might be a moral injury. Kind of doing a little reading on it. Anyway. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, we got out of there. I got back to the fire station. I had been relieved for the rest of my shift, which I was happy with. And I, uh, the next day I was scheduled to fly back to Idaho, which I did. Um, I couldn't talk to anybody on the airplane or I was going to break down crying. That was kind of hard. Um, I get back. You know, By this point, my family knows what's going on. And, uh, you know, we spent a week together, and I kind of decompressed. And at the end of a week, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm ready to go back to work. I'm all right. I'm okay. And uh, my wife, she was like, no, you shouldn't go back. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm all, because I'm on the honor guard. We're going to do all this stuff. We have plans. There's going to be a big memorial coming up. And I want to take part in that. It was all important to me. So we get back, and the very first thing I do when I get back to L.A., um, is I get my class A uniform and I'm involved in a movement to, t- to take Tori from the mortuary to the crematorium. And that was the first thing we did. And it's very formal. It's very quiet. We folded his flag off of his casket and took possession of that to give it to his widow later. Um, but all it was is just an engine company there and a chief and the honor guard. And it was super, super just solemn but it's very clean and crisp and precise and a lot of reverence. And I got back to the fire station that day, and it was kind of heavy. And I ended up running a, a small brush fire up in my area that day, a little 10-acre thing. Uh, yes, 10 acres is a small brush fire, for those of you listening. <laughs> um, but I'm running this small brush fire, and uh, I'm on the side of this road doing my job, and I'm talking to one of the other guys from our camp section and I broke down crying to him about it because I just couldn't hold it together and we get done and he's like dude Ed, you gotta take care of yourself I'm like yeah I'm working on it I'm alright and uh, you know I was kind of unwinding a little bit and the next day I was like oh, I'm gonna work an overtime at this really slow fire station like one call a day and then go there and my one call a day is a fatality and I'm standing there, and I got tears streaming down my face. And I get to talking to the deputy that's there. And before you know it, I'm just sobbing again. Oh, and I'm just a 
I'm a train wreck by this point. You know, my plan is to be in town for 10 days, and I'm on day two, and I'm already can't keep it together. But, you know, if people say, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. And uh, we ended up the next day and back at my fire station. And nothing big happened that day. We're at lunch, and uh, uh, my former supervisor from when I was uh, – when I was a camp crew foreman, he showed up. I'm like, hey, Chad, how you doing? Ended up talking to him, and then before we know it, I'm crying to him. And my crew, by this point, has got to be thinking, dude, what's going on with the captain? You know, I'm a mess. You know, and Chad's like, yeah, dude, you got to get yourself pulled together. It's like, I know, I'm working on it. About an hour later, you know, the chief shows up at the fire station, my boss, he's a great guy. And I'm all, hey, chief, how you doing? He's like, Ed, because don't get mad at him, but Rand, uh, Chad called me. I'm like, I'm sure he did. He says, you're not looking so good. Yeah, I'm not feeling so good. And uh, we talked about it, and I went off on stress at that point. Uh, finished out the shift, went home, flew up, flew back the next day on stress. I took uh, six shifts off, which, looking back, wasn't near enough. But those six shifts did allow me to get tied in with a therapist, uh, have emdr therapy which i'm a big advocate for it really helped me like i can tell the story now and not start sobbing it's still emotional sure. but at least i'm not sobbing doing it and that's helped me a lot and i and uh from what i understand by emdr i could probably benefit from it some more but um went from there and uh ended up coming back to work in six shifts and thinking i had it all behind me and i was good to go and I'm working, and I came back. I'm going to a brush fire, and I, yeah, I'm keeping stuff together, and no problem. Fast forward to maybe September, right? So that's July 1st I came back to work. And by September, I'm getting this call from our work comp administrators, and they're like, hey, we're going to deny your claim. What do you mean you're going to deny my claim? And I probably said a lot of really not nice things to them at that point. Um, but this whole kind of really tenuous grip I had on myself, which I didn't realize was kind of fragile, it all just unwound, like literally that phone call. Because now you've got this official company who's supposed to be helping you. You think they are in your head. You're thinking, uh, well, they're telling me they don't believe me. If they don't believe me, then maybe the guys I work with don't believe me. Maybe I don't believe me. Maybe none of this stuff is, like you start doubting everything. And I kind of went off the rails at that point. And uh, I didn't go off. I mean, it's, that's when I identified when things got bad for me again. Um, I went down this road. I started becoming pretty disconnected, disconnected at work, disconnected at home. Um, I changed fire stations out of that area. I went down to a completely different area, down where I'm at now, because I felt like the walls are closing in around me up there. Um at home, I just stopped talking to people. I didn't want to. I didn't want to feel that stuff anymore, right? So, um, but that was not a good way to handle things because now my marriage is a train wreck. You now kids are like, "What's wrong with dad?" You know, and I haven't told them the story, and they're always kind of yelling. I don't want to bury them under this, and I think to this day I've only actually sat down and told the story to. One of them, I don't think I've told the other two yet. I need to tell my oldest. But my son's only 14. I don't know if he's ready for the story yet. I have to tell him at some point, though. 
anyway. Um, so I'm, I don't want to say I'm cruising along, but time's going by and I'm struggling with stuff. And I ended up getting tied in with, you know, I'm telling guys at fire stations about what happened and why I'm struggling with things. And they're like, okay. And I'm trying to reach out to lean on guys. And I have this friend who's a, a peer support with another department altogether. And she says, hey, your department's going to present on the Sierra incident. And this is like a year later now. They're going to present on the Sierra incident down in uh, San Diego. Oh, all right. Yeah, maybe you ought to talk to them and see if they can use you. Oh, sure, I'll do that. So I reach out, and they didn't even know who I was. They're like, we didn't even know you were on this call. I'm like, so I was talking about it. And, well, the problem was I flew home the next day, right? My department had this massive peer support response, and I didn't get captured in any of that because I literally disappeared from the face of the department for a week. And that was nobody's fault. It's just the way it happened. And, uh, you know, we've talked about it with him, and uh, I think that they definitely have a handle on preventing stuff like that in the future. But it was interesting how that happened. But we're speaking at this on this panel. This is a 45-minute panel. There's four of us. And we go down to San Diego and we speak about this. And I realized, hey, this has been pretty good for me. It felt really therapeutic. I got to help a lot of people. Because, well, I think I help people. But they came up to me and told me they appreciated what I said. And they appreciated how open I was and how candid I was about my, my, my thoughts and my feelings. Um, but it was like the next day I'm listening to this. To this uh, he's an officer from down Long Beach. And he's talking. And he's talking about how he's been on five shootings. He's talking about how that's affected him. And he's got all of his symptomology listed up on the board. And all of a sudden, I was like, you know what? There's a guy here who's felt everything I felt. Because I thought I was the only guy. And uh, I hadn't told anybody that. But I'm seeing this now. There's a guy out there that's not I'm not the only guy anymore and that's when it occurred to me and uh and the time coming away from that how well shoot if you can help me feel out the way maybe I can help other guys feel that way like they're not alone and yeah it's kind of hard to get through all this stuff but there's things that you can do you can find purpose in um build up some resiliency and and that's why even now why I'm talking to you guys it's I mean this is kind of a shorter version of what I told you guys last time you know when we spoke sat in that room but um, every time I get to talk about it with people if I think I have a chance to help somebody I want to I feel it processing in my head and that helps I know it sounds kind of selfish but it's helping me to help other people man thanks for sharing that story that is that's a heavy story. That's a heavy story. Ed. Your connection with that police officer that day, when you saw those things listed, do you remember some of those bullet points? Did any of those stand out to you where you just went, holy shit, that's me, that's me, that's me? Oh, yeah. It's, you know, I think he had things like, you know, like the isolation and depression. Um, 
you know, he had some other things on there like, you know, like suicide and addiction. You know, I have thankfully not struggled with suicide and addiction. Uh, although I've come to really realize and learn that a lot of guys really, really do. You know, my issues have really been uh, much more emotional issues and attachment issues with people that are close to me and losing that, um, which is, in, I think, ultimately just as destructive. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard being in, like, I've been married for 28 years. You know, we had our 20-year anniversary, and then I was sitting there like, shoot, I don't know if we're going to make it to 29, because that's how bad I was feeling. And uh, that's not a good place to be. And uh, we're still working on stuff now. I can't say that it's all perfect. It takes work. And, you know, we have a, a marriage therapist we're talking to who specializes with guys like me. Right? So. Us. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, unfortunately, that's a thing. Um, but it's it's difficult. But I, you know, I had to make an actual conscious decision that I wasn't just going to roll over and stop. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. It's hard to manufacture emotions that disappear. It's hard to recreate attachment that has disappeared. Working at it. One of the major reasons that you haven't struggled with some of the suicidality and some of the other things that people have is because they experience trauma and, and certain things and they don't talk about it at all. And we're talking 20 years down the road, it's been affecting them. And they never open up about it. And then it just eats away at them slowly. And so with what you're doing and what you're sharing and what you're getting out there, I don't think it's selfish at all, right? I think I think a lot of people have come to understand that that's spreading the message and, and helping people become aware of these kind of things. It, it helps them. I mean, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, the fact that you're somehow connected in with some people to start telling your story was probably a, uh, a save of some type. We don't know the magnitude because we don't know what could have been, but we know what is right here. The, uh, you know, the, the, the connect with the police officer, that's powerful. I mean, just to know here and hear you and the listeners don't actually see what I'm seeing or see what Austin and I are seeing, but I, I can see the, the powerful connection just in your body language of what that meant to you, to know you're not alone. How did, how did to walk us through a little bit of that, just for a second, I wanna spend some time there, of the realization of, holy cow, I am not the only person feeling this way. It, you know what's hard about feeling that way is, it's hard to imagine anybody feeling what you feel and at that at that point, right? So I'm feeling. I told you I've, I don't feel like I feel alone. I feel isolated. The people I'm close have been closest to in my life. Like that, the attachment is not there anymore. I feel totally adrift, and I'm speaking because I'm grasping at trying to help myself understand what I've seen and what I've done and what I'm experiencing and the loss I've had I'm just grasping at that and uh it's hard to like I felt so just so bad 
that I'm like, nobody could have ever felt this bad before in the history of feeling bad. <laughs> you know, I don't know another way to put it. Um, but I'm listening to this, this Long Beach officer talk, and he's saying everything I had been feeling. And uh, to this day, I'm like, I've got to find this guy one day, and I just haven't done it. It probably wouldn't even be that difficult for me to find him. I'll track him down one day and talk to him, let him know how much he impacted me, because I'm sure he'd want to hear it. I know I'd want to hear it. I know if anybody wanted, if I, shoot, if I help anybody even here today, I'd, yeah, if I hope, great, man. I appreciate it. I'd like to know. Um, that matters to me. I'm going to take us back to the conversation uh, when, when uh, we first met and actually had a conversation, and forgive me if I overstep here, but you made a comment uh, that really resonated pretty often in our community as you look at people who have been on this side of it, this side of the journey, originally you looked at them and said, what's, what's, I'm paraphrasing and I'm putting words in your mouth. I know, but it was something to the tune of what's wrong with them. Why can't they just get better? Why can't they just suck it up? And now I was definitely one of those guys. I was never a peer support guy prior to going through this. I was never a mental health guy going through this. Um, It wasn't until I, basically had you know fell in the ocean of just whatever this is i realized how important this is um i mean i remember thinking you know and the people want to take issue with this and i'm sorry i used to think that when people committed suicide they were just cowards and i used to think that they were taking this easy way out and i used to think very dimly on that and that was of people even i knew personally who who had taken their own lives. Um, I have had a complete reversal on thinking that way. I think people break. And I think that, um, I think that there needs to be a way for, for just us in our industry to know that we can reach out to each other and support each other. And I think we're doing better at that than we used to do. I think it's like conversations like this, you know, you have conversations like this, which are, transparent and vulnerable and real and uh, expose a little bit of our underbelly of how tough we are when we're sometimes not really that tough. The people that hold the most power in changing the culture and changing the identity and changing the way that people think are the people like yourself. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that way personally, uh, you know, prior to your experiences. I don't, I, I talked to many people that have felt the same way and the people that feel that way, they are the ones that make the movement. They are the ones that change people's minds because it's it's honest, right? And being honest is is part of this process. And a lot of people, they'll they'll never talk about it. They'll never say what you just said because they're embarrassed by that. But there's strength and there's power in that. Strength and power in verbalizing it openly and saying, "Hey, yeah. I'm going to back up here and reevaluate my stance on some pretty significant things and what I believed in or what I thought." was true and not true yeah so let me ask you this what and and i'm drawing this out for the listeners because you and i talked a little bit more about this uh when we when we had our first conversation but but i want to take you back to the you spent a lot of time standing beside your friend yeah why i guess he was my friend and i wasn't gonna leave he was on that coal floor and uh, 
Oh, shoot, man. I remember thinking how uncomfortable that would be. And uh, I didn't want to be alone. And uh, like I've never gotten to have this conversation with um, um, his with his wife. Um, but I always want to tell her how much it mattered to me that he didn't have to be there, and uh, and not have somebody there that cared about him. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't gonna leave him for that. I think that alone is a powerful message as to what kind of friend you are, and what kind of partner you are, what kind of leader you are. And the reality is, you're you're standing with that person, make sure he passes with dignity. You know, that's that's a powerful message. That's a big part of the story, right there. Thanks for doing that. Every first responder, every warrior out there deserves that kind of friend. Yeah. So, thanks for sharing that. That was a heavy part of the conversation. I just wanted to point that out because that, that came out in our conversation before, and I, I wanted to make sure that we we brought that out and, and just really explored that a little bit more. Let's, and let's talk, let's talk now. Let's talk what you're doing now. For, for yourself and for your family and, and for your life moving forward, you've you've come to the understanding that this is going to be a long process, right? The healing process and the journey and whatever it is. What are you doing now to, to take care of yourself? So now, um, it's going to sound silly. I'm trying to work less. We're, I've been working way too much. Um, and that there have been a number of reasons for that that have been out of my control. But... Um, so I'm trying to work less, uh, trying to be more engaged in things um, at home. That's taking conscious effort um, because there's still a part of me that doesn't want to engage. Uh, there's, you know, I had said a little bit ago, it's hard to make um, emotions come back. It's hard to make attachment come back. That takes kind of a concerted effort. And I'm not quite sure how successful I'm being at it, but I'm working at it. So I haven't given up on it. It just takes work. You know, I see, uh, you know, I got my own therapist I talk to a couple times a month. And marriage therapy, doing I think right now a couple times a month. And, yeah, I just kind of forge ahead and trying to work less and do stuff up there more. Um, I'm saying all this as we go into brush fire season in Southern California. We'll see how successful I am at Busiest it. Busiest time of the year, man. Yeah. Drove on by one yesterday. Maybe helicopters coming in and dropping. Yeah, it's going to get busy. You, but I don't think there's any um, – I, I, I love the way you're framing that because I, I think it's a great opportunity to talk to listeners about uh, what success actually is. And, and, you know, giving up is the definition of unsuccessful. And that's not what you're doing. You're leaning into it and saying, I'm moving forward. I'm going to figure this out. I'm searching for, if not finding peace every day. Yeah. Well, it's an unfortunate reality that a lot of people, they, 
they forget the marriage, they move on from the job, and they just start a new portion of their life, right? That's a huge issue, and we talked about it earlier today, which is people, instead of doing that effort that you're talking about, the conscious effort, they do just give up. That's that's an issue. Dive into any series of things of, of you know, alcohol, physical fitness, social media. I mean, there are all kinds of things that you can use to hide or distract or avoid. All that stuff. You know, there's a number of things that you can hide behind. But I think even some of the things, I mean, I've kind of started doing some things. But I think ultimately any coping thing can become something you're hiding behind. I mean, ultimately, I mean, you keep hearing this phrase, you got to do the work. That's kind of this nebulous phrase you hear in this kind of in this arena, right? Oh, doing the work. I just want to have a great grasp as to exactly what that means. I've come to think that it's not avoiding the hard stuff. You know, hanging out in the living in the living room talking with my wife—that's difficult. And you no, know, she's going to hear this at some point, and she's going to get mad at me for saying that. Um, but you know what? It's uh, it's not difficult because I don't want to be there. It's difficult because I'm trying to face my own, you know, fears, demons, weaknesses. That's what's hard. Yeah. Well, look, I've we've been putting first responders who have been struggling in treatment for a long time, right? And when you talk about it being difficult to talk with your spouse, that's normal. When someone has been through a traumatic incident, that's something I hear all the time. And these people, they hate they hate that that's the fact, right? They don't like it, but it is the reality. And it's not because they don't love their wife or their spouse or, or anything like that. It's because they just, it's tough. It's tough to have the conversation. It's tough to be present. It's tough. Mental health is one where there's not this cookie-cutter recipe. There just isn't. Like, everyone would love the magic pill. I would love the magic pill. Let me know. Yeah, right? Love to have one myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it. the work is that, right? Like, you, you actually have more of a grasp on it than you think you do. I was I was actually thinking the same thing. But I, I, I want to piggyback off something you said, which is this is, this is true courage. This is, this is bravery. What we're talking about here is uh, courageous in and of itself of saying, you know, we can run into fires we can go up against bad guys we can you know do all those things but when we start looking inward and facing our own demons and facing our own internal challenges most people push back and say i'm not ready for that and i think to austin's point i think you're farther along in that than what you say and this podcast is obviously not an evaluation of ed monroe but i think it's a powerful message to point out uh, I think what you're saying and your messaging here is 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 so amazing to our listeners to say this this is the way. This is it right here. This is the journey and it fucking sucks. But it's worth it. I hope it's worth it. I keep telling myself it's worth it. I'm in the middle of it right now still. You know, new here guys. I remember this Long Beach guy, same one I'm talking about. He's like, "No, you're good." He's got his hand up in the air. It's, you're good, and then you're bad. It goes down. He's moving his arm up and down. He goes, you're good, and you're bad, and you're good, and you're not so good. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is the truth. Because I've had times I've just been like, oh, I've got this whooped. And then I've got other times where I'm like, I am completely a train wreck. And uh, 
like I would tell you like today, if you ask me where I'm at, I'm like in the middle. Okay. Um, so I'm working at trying to climb up, but it's, uh, yeah, it's constant. It's, it's hard. It's, you know, I would tell anybody listening, it's don't expect it to be easy. I wish it was easy. I wish it was a magic pill or a magic cocktail doesn't exist but it's also okay to not be okay right i know you've heard that a bunch that's what they that's say. a cliche bullshit line but it 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 does make sense because like one thing that we preach more than anything is you're gonna have bad fucking days like that's just the reality and now your responsibility is how do you react to those bad days because nobody nobody wants to wake up and feel like shit no one wants to have a nightmare the night before nobody wants to do that but we can't control what goes through our head Right, we can control our reactions and our coping mechanisms and how we handle those situations, right? But we can't control feeling like shit. And so it's a reality. But it's how we react and what we do moving forward, what we do to get out of that headspace and move towards, you know, that better time and embrace that better time. When you are feeling better, enjoy it. Be present, be in the moment, enjoy that and just keep working towards it cuz I know you know, for example, the better days they start getting more and more further down the road. The more work you do, the more better days you have. So, yes, to that point, we've had this conversation several times. The the, the bad days seem like a lot early on, but I was I had some advice, wisdom given to me, and I wanted to punch the guy in the throat when he told me. But he said, the, you'll have a lot of bad days early, but the good days will start out way in the bad. And then after a while, you'll get to where you have a lot of string together, a lot of good days, and the bad days show up once in a while. Then... It's not quite as bad because you're squeezing them in a bunch, a bunch, amongst a bunch of good days, and you know it's that's the leveling out. You learn to live with a a, a new partner in your life, which is trauma. And I I wanted to hurt him. Yeah, I didn't think that was funny at all. But there was there was so much truth to that of learning how to live um, with bad days that that come out of nowhere. They just like. Today's going to be the day that you're going to live with this yeah. shit. And you're like, okay, we'll figure out how to do that. Hey, I want to, I want to highlight something, uh, before we kind of, before we kind of, kind of do the, what's next for Ed Monroe, um, EMDR. Let's, uh, let's focus in a little bit on that because I love, it was just a short message that you gave us there. And I want the listeners to, to hear a little bit about do you mind expanding a little bit more on how that helped you? Um, you know, I can't. It's funny, EMDR and my therapist, she goes, hey, I want to try this out on you. Um, it's called EMDR. And she literally said, you're going to think it's snake oil. In which magic? It is voodoo. So, so for the listeners, that stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So it's a uh, therapeutic modality to deal with uh, a series of things, trauma and negative self-beliefs stuff like that so yeah sorry keep going it has something to do with helping you to kind of frame things and put it in your brain in a certain way that to where it's not quite so overpowering and move it into a different area in your brain and everything um, i'm not going to pretend to totally understand how that works um, but i told her i was feeling so miserable that whatever i can do to not feel so miserable that would be amazing and uh yeah, so I told her, hey, I'll, I, I'm buying it as long as you, if you tell me it's good, I'm going to do that because I trusted her. And, uh, yeah, it, 
I, like I said, I used to not be able to tell that story at all without just sobbing. And ever since I did that, I can get through it. It's still emotional, and it's still emotional components to it, um, especially if I haven't talked about it in a while. Um, but I can get through it without completely breaking down, uh, which is a good thing. Have you noticed any other areas that were impacted from utilizing that therapy? You know, I had it super early. I mean, I had it within a month, right? So probably three weeks after the incident. And, uh, you know, I remember her telling me, she goes, look, this is super close to your incident. Um, your results are going to be significant just based on that. And she was happy that that wasn't somebody a year or two later trying to get help. Or 20, um, like yeah, we talked she about. Said that's a, yeah. yeah, it doesn't have to be months. It can be years. You can struggle with this stuff for sure. And uh, so I didn't have a lot of other stuff at that point point that I was struggling with I just knew this I had this overwhelming sense of sorrow and loss and and pain and being depressed and feeling claustrophobic and it helped me get all that kind of put into its own little box so it wasn't just hammering me anymore um now since then whether it was you know when I received my initial denial which they did end up picking up part of it um they picked up four out of the six shifts yeah the two they didn't but that's another story um so they didn't do 100 percent the best thing um whether it was the denial whether it was uh some of the other things that have happened since then that really kind of thrust everything back into me and you know, i've had things that have really kind of made me re-feel a lot of things um and I think I would benefit from EMDR again if I need to talk with her about it. But I definitely, just for me, that one experience, it was it was pretty profound how much it helped me. It was, uh, like, immediately helped me. You know what I like about that, particularly as we talk about this, is we're obviously, we both have been to treatment and been in residential treatment ourselves, work for it. Not everybody needs that to heal. Right, like this is a powerful message of like, you don't always have to go away for thirty days, to to be able to function, to be able to work through things, to be able to get back to work, all those type of things. That's a powerful message because a lot of people they just, you know what, I'll go away for thirty days and then they they will fix it instead of putting that weight on your shoulders to do that. That's that's honorable in my my opinion. One hundred percent. And and to the MDR piece, uh, I just want to point out to the listeners that that uh, it's a it's not a cure-all it's not a it's not a fix-all it's a tool uh, and a therapist's tool bag that is absolutely um what did you call it um i refer to as voodoo i mean there's there's snake snake oil oil, that's what it was he says snake oil voodoo uh it, it, it is some kind of crazy method that uh and it doesn't make anything go away it you you described it actually quite accurately. It moves it from uh, one area of the brain to the other where it's actually supposed to be filed, which lessens the impact of uh, those things on your on your physical being. Uh, there's a lot of things going on with it, but the, I, I just want to take a minute and, and let you talk about that because I think it's a powerful part of your message, and, and uh, I think it's a big component to where you are today. Um, you know, had you, you we don't know what you would have looked like or acted like had you not had that 
but we know what you are today. Uh, and that's part of your story. So I think it's an important point. So, so for Ed Monroe today, I mean, you're sitting here, we walk in and you're at the fire station and, and you know, your guys, obviously you command respect. This is the second time that there's a lot of respect for, uh, Captain Ed Monroe around, uh, this environment. You can feel it, you can see it, you can sense it. Um, you know, what's, what's Ed Monroe look like now and in the future? What's your, I know you mentioned you want to continue telling this story because it helps. What does that look like? Yeah, as I get kind of towards the end of my career, I've started thinking about that and what I want to do. Um, I really want to work doing this. Um, I think that the opportunity to speak to people, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's a room full of a thousand people is something I want to do if I you know if I put 999 people to sleep but I have one guy go oh my god that just helped me and because of him I can see a little bit of light in this dark room I've been in that I can't find a door hey there's a light right there and hey I'll help I'll do that that's what I want to do which is what the Long Beach officer did for you oh absolutely 100 percent that's how I felt. Future there for you. The people like you are needed in the community and nationally. Absolutely. I, I, I and I think this is, thank you for telling your story. This is I know that was hard. Uh and sharing it, obviously, you know, you even said it helps you, but that story's a that story's a rough story. And I really appreciate you sharing it. Sure. Like I said, it's not so much my it's just how I experienced that day. I mean to me it's Tori's story and Arnie's story. Arnie's sure. the captain who got shot, and you know, and he's never going to work again. You know, I, I just hope I'm respectful enough to them and do them enough justice to Tori's family and to Arnie that, you know, they don't mind me talking to guys to help them using their story. I said to me that 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 matters. So if a listener actually was out there and said, "Man, I." I really want to talk to Ed or I feel like I need to connect with Ed or even somebody says, you know what? I want to bring him into my station or my agency. Uh, how do people get a hold of Captain Ed Monroe? Uh, well, a couple of ways. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. It's Ed Monroe. Um, I'm the only Ed Monroe on LinkedIn that works for the LA County Fire Department. Um, my, uh, my email address is, uh, I made one just for this kind of stuff is uh, monroe.fire.speaker at gmail.com. And uh, but LinkedIn's probably the quickest, easiest way. Well, this has been a powerful message. Uh, Austin, anything before we kind of wrap up and, and leave Ed to his firefighting duties today? Look, I, and I, I'm not joking when I say this. Uh, some, some would call me a little bit dead inside sometimes, and he, he had me tearing up. Like it, it's a it's powerful a message. Story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of power in sharing that with you. You got the short version today too. Yeah, brother. yeah. I don't know if I could have handled the long version because it had me going there. I had to back away from the mic and take a second. So I appreciate you sharing. Sorry, right. I think I sniffed enough in the mic for both of oh, us. Yeah, that's fair too. Yeah, it's all good. Ed, love your message. Love the story. Love what you're doing out there. Love you. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great being here. You guys are great. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. 
Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.